Welcome to the We Rush In podcast, dedicated to exploring the physical and mental demands of being a first responder. I'm your host, Dan Gignard, and I'm a Canadian police officer with many years of experience as a use of force instructor and police supervisor and everyday patrol officer. I understand firsthand the importance of maintaining both physical and mental fitness while on the job. In this podcast, we will be talking to Canadian first responders from a variety of fields, police, fire, paramedics, and even military, as well as service providers who assist in the training and health of first responders. We'll hear about the challenges and triumphs of maintaining fitness, training, and overall health and wellness while on the job. We'll also learn valuable tips and inspiration on how to stay fit and healthy, both physically and mentally, while serving our communities as first responders. Whether you're a first responder yourself or just someone who wants to understand the unique challenges of this profession, this podcast is for you. So let's dive in and explore the world of first responders' health and wellness. Thank you for joining us and stay tuned. Good day, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the We Rush In podcast. Today, we have with us uh, Rich Portwood. He's a police officer, former police officer out of Illinois, uh, current uh, founder and owner of Blue Line Tactical Academy. Uh, today, we're going to talk about his uh, history and uh, history in law enforcement and the starting of this company. All right, Rich, uh, how are you doing today? Great, great. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, we're happy to have anybody on the show to talk about their experiences. Uh, your story was pretty captivating to me, so I'm happy to have you on here. I guess we could start with just uh, telling me about yourself a little bit, a brief history of your involvement in law enforcement. Sure. Um, I actually just retired after 19 years um, as a police officer. Uh, being a cop was something I always wanted to do um, as a kid. I was just kind of fascinated by crimes that were never solved. And uh, it was something that I wanted to get into. And I felt like, you know, that was the path to make a, a little bit of a difference in the world. And uh, I don't know, I had big dreams whenever I was in high school. And I thought maybe I, I could try to uh, be an FBI agent. And when that didn't work out, I decided I'd be a local cop. And I think that was one of those things where God had a plan uh, for my life. And he knew that I probably wouldn't have been happy as an FBI agent living in a big city and uh, put me in a position where I, I was able to impact a, a community um, that I worked in and lived in. And uh, I think it worked out really well, really well. All right. Um, I guess why and how did Blue Line Tactical Academy come to be? Like what prompted you to get that up and running? <laughs> uh you know, honestly, I was uh, captivated by my academy firearms instructor, um, former Delta Force commando by the name of Greg Robinson, and uh, thought that he was just amazing. And he taught me a lot. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that was just marksmanship. And uh, the very first night shift that I was working, I realized how little I knew about tactics. And it really prompted me to start a journey trying to go to as many training classes that I could afford. I was taking all my comp time, my vacation time, and I was going to classes, anything that I could afford. And, um, you know, once I, I started uh, taking the classes, I, I started looking into practical shooting and started a, a path where I was going to USPSA matches as often as I could. 
and uh, saw my skills growing in leaps and bounds. And it caught the attention uh, of a gentleman by the name of James Toll, uh, who at the time had an internet show about uh, shooting sports. And he asked me to be one of the initial panelists for a show called Stop the Threat. And uh, I ended up being a panelist for eight seasons on that show. And James had encouraged me to follow my dreams and start my own training company. And one of the other guests that I met on the show was a guy by the name of Wes Doss. And uh, Wes was a a brilliant person uh, and probably the best tactical trainer I've ever come across. And... uh, you know, he, he told me his advice was that uh, it's easier to push a rock uphill when you've got help. And he said, once you come work for me, I'll, I'll uh, teach you everything that you need to know. And uh, unfortunately, Wes passed away a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, we we had talked about me starting my own company anyhow. But uh, it, it was just kind of time for me to step out and uh, start my own. And uh, unfortunately... You know, things kind of got derailed for me last year. And uh, so I'm kind of starting over um, again uh, with Blue Line Tactical Academy. All right. And just overall, like what is um, what's the main, I guess, the mission or the vision or what's go like, what's the main purpose of the Tactical Academy? What What is your end goal, I guess? What do you, what's the future look like for it? Uh, my goal is to, to be doing this full time. Um, I, I had to give up my career in law enforcement uh, due to illness. And, um, you know, this is a, a way for me to be still in, in touch with law enforcement, uh, participate in it. But, uh, you know, there, there, for me, there's, there's a big passion for small town police work. Um, there's so many small towns that they can't afford the training and, and so many uh, police officers who can't afford to do it on their own. And I've seen that a lot through my career. And uh, so the the goal really is for me to be able to provide quality training for law enforcement of all all sizes. You know, it doesn't matter if your agency has five people or 500. I want to be able to give you the best training that you can have at a price that you can afford. And, uh, you know, I want to be able to do the same thing for concealed carry holders, too. So... Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I make reference to context quite a bit. And, uh, you know, I, I see a lot of training that comes from the military side that, uh, you know, guys will get out of the military and they, they start their own training companies and they present this training to law enforcement. And unfortunately, the context just doesn't doesn't work. Um, and then there are a lot of cops who decide, hey, I'm going to teach concealed carry holders. But the rules are different. The context is different. You know, um, to give you a good example, I I decided I would take a vehicle engagement class uh, probably 12, 13 years ago, something like that. Um, The instructor was very well known. He was a former Delta Force guy. And uh, the first day was amazing. It was all just just marksmanship training and uh, handgun skill builders. Learned a lot from that. But the next day we actually got into the the tactics of vehicle takedowns and what he presented to us as a class were the tactics and techniques that his unit had used in Bosnia when capturing um, war criminals. And none of it was anything that I could use 
back home out on the streets as a police officer. Um, everything that uh, we were presented was out of context, and it violated not only policies from my department, but also state law. So th those things need to be taken into consideration. Uh, context is a big word for me, and I, I feel like you have to tailor the training to your audience, and uh, hopefully I'm doing a good job of that. Yeah, for sure. It definitely makes sense. Uh, I know rules up here in Canada are a little bit different, but uh... – I worked part of my policing career in Saskatchewan and they have a kind of an overall oversight, I guess, for the entire province. So uh, things like vehicle takedown, all that, it's all done to a standard for everybody in the entire province. And I was lucky enough where they were looking to revamp that entire program. And some of it did involve the vehicle engagement and the vehicle CQB. And I was actually mm -hmm. able to participate and learn to be an instructor in it, which I was thought was pretty great. But yeah, I could definitely see where uh, the, the military context where the rules are completely different. is going to make a real difference as to what we could actually get away with uh, yeah. dealing with day-to-day -day civilians, right? Like it's, it's just not even the same kind of thing. It really does make a difference for sure. Um, I, I feel like that's unfortunately. I, I feel like that's uh, part of the the training community these days. That uh, a lot of folks they they tend to gravitate towards people who had those special operations military careers, and uh, not necessarily thinking, hey, what they're teaching fits into what I I'm doing out on the street. Um, you you got to look at those rules of engagement, and uh, you know what are your policies, what are the laws. Uh, I know Illinois has passed the uh, Safety Act, and it has changed a lot of the rules for what police can and cannot do in the training that we're receiving. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, we have to evolve. Uh, it happens up here, too. We can't uh, – we, we kind of give a nod to the old teachings up here. We call them uh, – you know, what you're doing is not wrong, but they're, they're legacy teachings. It's things that – that's the old way we used to do it. And it's not that it was wrong. It's what we had. It was what with the best thing we had at the time, but we yeah. have to, we have to adjust, right? We have to mm -hmm. change things, dig things. And often those changes are to not only just keep the public more safe, but also just to keep the officers more safe, right? A safer yeah. way for them to go forward and do the same job more efficiently. So I think yeah. it's pretty important. Yeah. And I, I think, um, uh... You know, some people get upset about the demilitarization of, of police, um, saying that we can't do this or we can't do that. But it, it's just like you said, there have been so many cases in the United States. If you look at what just happened down in Memphis, um, we have to change our culture. We have to change the way we are training some of our officers. Uh, what happened in Memphis was unexcusable and, and never should have happened in the first place. And it goes back to what training they received and the culture in that police department uh, or at least that unit and uh, we have to work hard to change that because um, every time something like that happens it affects every every police officer in america and probably in canada too oh it definitely does um it, it carries over right um yeah. that that happens you no matter what happens what happens in the media involving police it it goes around the world like it's not just canada u.s like everybody it it helps the public view us in a different light 
Uh, and it's very unfortunate. And it, like you said, it's unexcusable and it's unnecessary. And we do need to change the culture yeah. so that uh, so that we could, you know, be more effective and protect yeah. protect our communities. So I definitely yeah, think, most definitely. Yeah. Um, I, I think you see a lot of uh, officers as they get deeper into their careers, they're they're burnout and uh, compassion and empathy go out the door. Um and maybe that's because of what they see and, and what they experience through the years. Um, but again, why, why are we not addressing the mental health needs of, of the police officers? Um, you know, if someone were to have something traumatic happen in their career and affect them mentally, you know, if you ask for help, that's that's a big black mark on, on your career and could be potentially ending your career. Yeah, we've gotten a lot better at that up here as far as the black mark or the the ending of the career but there's still you can't help but feel that there will be some stigma maybe it won't be at the administration level because you know they have to accommodate i think there's just still that worry that your your fellow officer on the on the street with you is is going to maybe look at you differently if they were to find out that you were seeking help it's a lot less though i find i don't know about in the states but here we are getting a lot better uh, we are really trying it's, but we, it's been ignored for so long. There's a lot of catch up to do, to get, to get yeah. to where you need to be. Right. Um, I, I actually have a former coworker. I didn't work with him long, but I knew him for a number of years and he did have a diagnosis and it wasn't treated correctly. Um, and it wasn't believed. And although he didn't die, you know, as a direct result of his PTSD, his ability to take care of himself was gone because he was busy fighting for his livelihood, you know? Yeah. So, I mean that, yeah. So there's definitely changes need to happen. Uh, there's no, yeah, and, and you know, right along those same lines, uh, it's kind of a dirty little secret, so to speak that, uh, you know, there are a lot of police officers die every year of suicide. And, uh, we don't really talk about that much. You know, we, we talk about the 22 a day with the military, but we don't talk about police officers, uh, who day in and day out, we're, we're dealing with the worst situations that, that people around us have. And uh, that's got to take a mental toll. And, uh, you know, eventually you, you might have PTSD, depression, something like that. Um, but there are officers who are struggling and uh, wind up committing suicide. And we need to take that stigma away. Uh, but we need to talk about it more. But uh, I feel like we also need to, to address the fact that Police work is a combat job. I know that that doesn't get said very often, but uh, every day that you go to work, you could potentially be in a gunfight, a fist fight, something. Uh, it is a combat position. Yeah, no, I agree. There's actually an old saying. I don't remember where I heard it or whatever, but uh, basically uh, the police is a peacetime soldier, always at war, right? Yeah. That's just, yeah, absolutely. yeah. yeah. So we're always dealing with something and nobody calls us when they're having a good day. So you just don't know what you're going to be walking into. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, now, a, a, an overlapping theme with this podcast is, well, and I try to touch on it whenever I can, is people uh, transitioning away from police or uh, their ability to make a living. Because there's a lot of stigma around that too. Stigma around what I'll be looked like for leaving, what I'll be, you know, all that. 
So I guess my question is, how has your transition been overall? Um, obviously, anybody can imagine there's going to be times where it's difficult because you're walking away from something that you did for so long. But like, how has it been for you overall trying to make make your way in the world without the policing part of it, you know? Um, you know, I, I get asked that probably once a day, it seems like. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it, it just seems like whenever I go out of the house, uh, I run into someone, you know, who's asking me, hey, how you doing? How you feeling? Um, and, and my reply is usually it, it kind of feels like someone burned my house down. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I was just kind of left with nothing. Um, to give you a, a little bit of an insight, like I uh, I didn't feel sick and uh, had no idea what was happening. Uh, I actually went to my family doctor because uh, I'd broken my nose about 12 years ago chasing a, a suspect. And whenever I tackled him, you know, his head snapped back and, and broke my nose and I haven't been able to breathe since then. So I was just looking for a referral to an ear, nose and throat doctor. And uh, the conversation turned to cancer. And uh, we, we've had some, some family members recently diagnosed with cancer. And uh, he asked me if I was willing to, to get a colonoscopy based upon our, our family history. And I said, you know, I'll wait till I'm 50, 55. Um, I was 46 at the time. And uh, you know, he said, well, I, I really think you ought to do something sooner. And uh, to make a long story short, I ended up getting tested. and. Uh, had stage three colon cancer and uh, had surgery, had a little over my half of my colon uh, removed along with parts of the small intestine. Um, it had start, started to spread into some of the lymph nodes. So I ended up doing about seven months of chemotherapy. And, uh, you know, you when you're fairly young, um, I, I like to think that I was young, 46, you know, but uh, I was pretty fit. You know, I worked out, I ran every day, um, I did whatever I wanted, you know, and uh, they, they gave us a choice. They, they gave my wife and I a choice between the, the treatments. And, uh, you know, I could do three months and uh, it probably wouldn't be quite as effective as a longer treatment. But the longer treatment had more potential for side effects that were, were long lasting. And uh, so the side effects became that... Uh, I've developed neuropathy in both hands and my left leg. So uh, I don't have any feeling left in my, my hands. And uh, my left leg feels like somebody plugged in an extension cord, an electrical cord into my leg. It, it's just kind of a, a, an odd feeling. And uh, so because of that, the doctor said, you, you can't go back to being a police officer. You know, you wouldn't be safe for yourself or, or anybody else. You know, I can't run. I can't, can't feel anything. Um, it's just time for you to walk away. And uh, I don't know as if there's anything that has ever hit me so hard. Um, I, I feel like I, I took the cancer diagnosis pretty well. And, uh, you know, I, I worked with it. I fought with it every day. Um, but when they came and told me, hey, you're not going back to the police department anymore, that, that was just soul crushing. And, um, you know, it, it was very difficult. Very difficult to give it up. Um, you know, I, I, I talked it over with a friend of mine, Tom Satterley, that when he left the Army, you know, he said that he had to mourn his career. And he told me, he's like, your, your situation is far different than, than mine. Uh, you know, Tom reached a point where, you know, he had the time in. He, he could 
turn around and walk away from it and retire. Um, but it was entirely different when someone is telling you, you can't do this anymore. It wasn't my choice. And so it was, it was a very difficult thing to do. And, uh, you know, you go from being one of the guys that, uh, you know, you're, you're laughing and joking around in the police department every day to, Hey, I'm one of the old retired guys now. Um, you know, you're not part of that, that group anymore. And it is very difficult. And, um, you know, I, I know Tom said that I, I should probably choose something away from law enforcement, get as far away from police work as I can. Um, but, you know, my heart says, hey, I, I still have something to contribute to law enforcement, even if it is just teaching other people and, and training other people. I want to be involved in it somehow. And uh, maybe that's just, just holding on to, to it. Um, but I like to think that's e easing my transition. Um, you know, if I can't be out on the streets, I want to try to help the other guys, the next generation of cop. I want them to be able to come home. And if I can pass on what I've learned, then that's what I need to do. No, it definitely makes sense. Um, that's been a common thread that I've thought from talking to people is that morning of losing the career, like you're, you're mourning the loss of that. And that all makes sense. But at the same time, I can see where you're coming from, where you still have a way to contribute. You still have um, things that you can teach people, things that will help them go home safe. Uh, that's one thing. I used to work for the Mounties. It's a Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Um, one thing, it doesn't happen with a lot of guys, but some guys that can't be on the street anymore, if it works out for them, they can at least go to the training academy. It's all in one place in Regina. And then they can you know, continue to teach there and at least impart some of that knowledge, right? Because when, yeah. you when you lose older guys, you start to lose your knowledge base. Um, so, yeah. you know, this uh, it's definitely something that I think a lot of guys think of, even if they just retire under normal circumstances, they, they probably think, well, there's I still got something I can contribute. So it's definitely, yeah, and, uh, you know, kind of tying into that a little bit with what we were talking about earlier is that, uh, you know, I, I started to realize that, you know, over the last 19 years, I have volunteered to work every overtime that I can. Um, I, I took every holiday, every weekend, every night shift that I could. Mm -hmm. And uh, everything else was on the back burner compared to the, the job. And uh, the job came first. And I started realizing, you know, as I'm laying there taking chemo that, uh, you know, sooner or later, your career is going to end, uh, whether you want it to or not. You know, if you've done 30 years and you're ready to walk out the door or if you're like me that, you know, it, it was just taken from you. Um, you know, I'm very, very fortunate that I, I have a, a beautiful wife who is very supportive and uh, very understanding. And I've got a great family. But, uh, you know, I also have a faith in God that I, I just trust that there is a plan for me that, uh, you know, he has brought me this far and, uh, you know, they, they found the cancer and uh, got it out of me. There's got to be a reason why I'm still here. And uh, I just have to be patient and wait for his plan to, to be there and, and shown to me. Yeah, like um, you just never know if that career is always going to be there. I think uh, people are getting maybe a little bit better at realizing that sometimes it's just a job. Maybe don't pour your entire self into it. But I also think that maybe some people don't realize 
especially the general public, what it takes to have the mentality to go do this job every day. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to make it part of your who you are in order to be effective at it, in order to want to do it well enough to go home at the end of the day. It's not something it to be taken. such a piece of your identity. Yeah, it's not something to be taken lightly. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, you, you start thinking about if you talk to, to most guys, um, you know, and you ask, hey, what do you do? They'll say something like, well, I, I teach history or, you know, I, I sell insurance or, or something like that. But if you talk to police officers, I'm a cop. It's not necessarily what you do. It's it's who you are. That, mm-hmm. That's the way you see yourself. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess just to wrap things up, where can people find you? Where can people find Blue Line? Where can, you know, Tactical Academy? Where where can people hit you up? Uh, we are on Instagram at blue.line.tactical.academy and uh, also on Facebook. But uh, if you go to bluelinetacticalacademy.com, uh, I'll be updating the, the website a little bit more. But uh, I, I'm getting ready to schedule some open enrollment co- uh, courses. I will be uh, presenting at the Alita Conference in St. Louis in March. And uh, I'm, I'm looking for some ranges and host agencies to uh, fill out 2023 and 2024. All right. Perfect. Um, yeah, I guess what we'll do is we'll put some links in the show notes. And I really want to thank you for coming on today. It's, it means a lot to me that uh, you hit me up to have a chat. Um, yeah, so we'll put some stuff in the show notes. And otherwise, uh, take care of yourself. And I wish you all the best. I'll keep an eye on uh, Blue Line Tactical Academy through the internet there and see how things are going. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the We Rush In podcast where we explore the physical and mental demands of being a first responder. I hope that you found today's discussion and interview informative and inspiring. Remember, maintaining fitness, training, and overall health and wellness is essential for first responders to be able to serve their communities to the best of their ability. Stay tuned for another episode on the 1st and 15th of every month, featuring more interviews and insights from Canadian first responders and service providers. In the meantime, please visit our website for more information and resources on first responders, health and wellness, and don't forget to follow us on social media for updates and additional content. Thank you for listening. Stay safe out there.